Welcome to The Big Picture, brought to you by AT&T, reminding you that when it comes to wireless networks, just okay is not okay. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about what has become an absurdly predictable Oscar season. Amanda, we're here at the Sundance Film Festival. We're joined by our pal, Chris Ryan. Hi, Chris. I'd like to thank everybody on Reddit, everybody on Twitter who's been demanding that I return to the big picture (laughs) after my terrible, unfair banning following the Roger Deakins podcast. It is with great regret that I have allowed Chris to return to this show against my better judgment. I thought I was telling Amanda, I had the over under for my return to this show at Easter, much like Christ, I would return to this pod. Okay. You know, Chris, I think of you like the podcast Shambi. You know, sometimes you just can't see out of your glasses and what you need is a soft rag to clean it up. And you are the soft rag of the big picture. So I appreciate you coming back here. You know, later in the show, we're going to talk about um, some of the important movies released this weekend. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of the movies we're seeing at the Sundance Film Festival. But first, we need to go to the big picture's big picture. This is a problem in the big picture. Do you know what I mean? And of course, we're talking about the Oscar race and the DGA Awards happened this weekend. And um, I'm feeling a bit dissolute about the Oscars, guys, because Sam Sam Mendes won. And um, that's boring. Mm -hmm. Amanda, were you surprised at all by the results of that win? I was just slightly because I think, again, we had all convinced ourselves that Bong Joon-ho really had a chance at the DJs, which he he might have. He might have been the second place vote getter. But we really thought there was momentum basically because there was one cool party at the Sunset Tower that Sean and I both really wanted to have been at. <laughs> and we were like, oh, great. Now Bong Joon-ho is going to win the, the tide Oscar. is turning. Yeah. 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 Alas, that was not the case. But I think so that is surprising in the sense of we let our feelings and hopes and expectations and um, party aspirations get in the way. But in reality, no, it's not that surprising. Yeah. I mean, 15 of the last 16 winners of DGA for feature film have gone on to win Best Director. So this is a pretty... You're feeling like, are we in lockdown yet? Well, the one exception that happened in the history of the DGAs is um, when Ben Affleck won for Argo. And then very oddly, he was not even nominated for an Oscar oh, that's in 2012. So this is, you know, we talk about super duper locky locks on this show. But at this point, if Sam Mendes doesn't win, it will be stunning, I think. Yes. The question is, are we a double lock for 1917 for Best Picture and Sam Mendes for Best Director? When's the last time that happened? Picture Director? Um... It's happened two out of the last six times. Okay. And four out of the last six times, there's been a split. So, you know, Damien Chazelle won for Best Director, but Moonlight went on to win Best Picture. Things like that happen frequently. Alfonso Cuaron won for Gravity, but did not win for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. So it happens. The split is common. It's just, I don't feel like any of the other eight nominees feel like they have enough momentum to break the, the 1917 wave. Obviously, it just won the PGA too. Like PGA, DGA, Globes, there are just, there's too much math at this point. And I, I, it's really got me kind of crestfallen. I don't want to be melodramatic on a podcast about the, the meaningless Oscars, but I'm, I'm pretty bummed. I am as well. It's, it's boring in two ways. It's boring in the sense of it's January 26th or 27th, and we think we know exactly what's going to happen in every one of the major categories of the Oscars. But that, that's just boring. At some point, it's just a professional problem. We got to make a podcast. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we're sitting here just sulking. And, I, you know, God bless you for listening to us sulk. And thank you for <laughs> sharing in our sad emotions. But there is, it's it's not fun and exciting. There's no anticipation or or mystery. The other is just that 
1917 is such a classic Best Picture Oscar thing. And I am on record on this podcast somehow of being like, eh, I, I didn't mind 1917. I the thought reply parts guy. of it were very effective. Yes, Amanda Reply Guy Dobbins. But it, it again, it's the thing of the, the, the actual great film never wins Best Picture. And it's always something kind of predictable that feels influenced by certain older, more traditional members of the Academy. And it's it's not fun in a story level either. Chris, you don't pay as close attention to this stuff as we do on a regular basis. No, but I was wondering if you guys could tell me if you feel like there is a little bit of um, an issue here with the bumped up date of the Oscars. Like there's not enough runway for any of these other movies to tell a story. Perhaps like 1917 was released at the exact right time, at the exact right moment, the exact right kind of pitch. And everybody's like, yes. I do not have to rewatch The Irishman. This do, is the best movie. I do think that that's exactly what happened. I think, it, it, you know, frequently we've talked on the show about movies getting released in December being a hindrance to its awards campaign. I think because of the incredibly multifarious nature of the 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 nominees this year, the fact that it's kind of seemed like there were three to four frontrunners at any given time, a movie like this coming late actually benefited in a big way because no, no, there's still no real kind of like negative pitch on the movie. I guess the biggest criticism the movie's getting, and I should say, I think all three of us really like the movie. It's it, it, This isn't really like a value judgment on 1917, but the biggest criticism is just the sort of video game-esque quality mm-hmm. of the storytelling, I think. But otherwise, this is, we're not in the hatchet job days of the, you know, late 90s and early 2000s where you'd f- drum up these incredible negative campaigns against movies most movies have not come up against it, but we've lived with all of these movies for a long time. And 1917 still feels fresh to people. And I think the freshness of the filmmaking style is what's winning people over. Someone mentioned something. I can't recall who said it, but the DGA win in particular is notable because that prize doesn't just go to Sam Mendes. It goes to the first unit directors, mm-hmm. the second unit directors, mm-hmm. all of the people who work on the crew of that film in that capacity. And all of those people vote. Sure. And so... All of those people, those sort of below the line folks who work on a film, want to reward an achievement like this movie. Um, so I think that that's a, also a significant factor. If the movie had been released on November twelfth, maybe it would not be getting here with such such stride. Yeah, but I don't know. Well, this is the great divide we have to negotiate with the Oscars every year. Is that the Oscars? We want them to be a, a mile marker for cinematic achievement and movies that we're going to remember for a very long time. And sometimes they just reward the things that people who worked on movies were really into. And this was an achievement movie. It's an awe-inspiring movie. It, it blows people away. It's a movie to see in theaters, um, you know, and, and it, against a lot of different movies that, you know, for as great as Marriage Story is and for great as Irishman is, you know, you see people come out of it and they have sort of diffuse takes on it. It's like they come out and they're like, I maybe mean, it was very thoughtful. It made me think a lot about this stuff. 1917, there's actually not a lot of thinking that goes into that. It's a feeling movie. It's a real like, I am being, my 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 feelings and my my heart are being completely played by the 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 director and the cinematographer and the editor. So that movie actually historically doesn't always win. You know, I mentioned Gravity before. I think if you think about Avatar, like Avatar was that movie, which was just an, an amazing achievement at the time. We kind of make fun of Avatar now, but when Avatar came out, it was it was a very big deal to people who make movies. They're, people couldn't understand how Jim Cameron did that. Didn't win Best Picture. Hurt Locker won. Hurt, the, Parasite is kind of the well, Hurt Locker of 2020. Except that Hurt Locker is a war movie and 1917 is also a war movie. And I really do think, it's a, right. it's, a, it's a combination of what Chris... I, it's three things. It's timing, though I think Best Picture is always a case of timing and somebody just finds the right spot in their particular year and it changes from year to year and you win. I think also, to Chris's point... It just it is a technical achievement and every single person from a crafts level or who understands what's going on behind the camera 
in that movie is really responding to it. And then it does also hit the the kind of serious Oscar center of of a war movie. So let me ask you this. We have two full weeks until the ceremony. What are we even supposed to talk about? What is even the nature? Because we talked about this shortened season. I can't even imagine if the if the awards were on February 23rd and we still had this sort of fait accompli feeling about 1917. What would we <laughs> what is the what is the storyline? What is the narrative? I mean, it's up to us, I guess, to invent it in some ways, but I don't I don't I kind of don't know what to say about these awards right now because everything feels so locked in. I do wonder if it were February 23rd, whether all of and and thus the guilds and everything was a bit more spaced out, whether there is a little bit more room to move. And you do see Parasite winning. I mean, you did see Parasite winning at the SAG Awards, but you you see something other than people just kind of scrambling for 1917 because it's right there. So I think in some ways, the fact that we don't have anything to talk about is the result of the compressed season. It's just kind of everyone's like, well, we ran out of time. This is the one. See you next year. And it's not even a frustration of a binary this year. Although I will say, yeah, obviously people are going to be disappointed that Parasite probably won't win, although it was such a long shot, I think it's fair to say. This is just such a rich movie year. It's not like 1917 is going to beat Ford versus Ferrari. It's going to be Irishman. It's going to beat Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood. It's going to beat Parasite. These are all movies that I think we'll be watching for years to come. It, it's hard to imagine being like, it's time for me to fire up 1917 in five years. Maybe, but right now it's hard. In a weird way, 1917 for all its achievements, I also think is um, the candidate with the least with the least amount of negatives. Like there, I, I haven't really read a very, it, I, I got to be honest, I didn't even think my case against 1917 was particularly compelling. It sounded more like whining. And most of the pieces I've read that have um, taken issue with the movie are kind of like, I just didn't like this. You know, it, it's not really like, th- nobody has been able to unwind that movie or really poke a hole in it in a way where I was like, I hate this now. Thank you for articulating what it was that was bothering me about it. That's happened in years before where I've been like, that's why I don't like La La Land. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that didn't happen this year with 1917. I think you're exactly right. I think there actually hasn't been a compelling case for it not. It's just that we've seen something like it win so many times that we're almost conditioned, especially when we're making a show like this, to seek something new. And also to convince ourselves that because the Academy has this kind of awful history of rewarding not the best movie, as Amanda is saying, that at some point, because of all of these efforts that they've made in the last five years to change things, and all these efforts they've made in the last 10 years to expand the best picture pool, to all the things that they've done to change things, they're still just kind of doing Oscar-y things. And we saw that this year with the sorts of people that were nominated for best director, the lack of people of color being nominated for acting prizes. Like it just kind of feels like Mm -hmm. everything that happened in the last five years just kind of got reset for some reason. And maybe that's just a function of where the industry is and what particular movies we got this year. But I, I I don't know. I find myself in a kind of intellectual quicksand with this. I can't, where I can't figure out why this won't change. Well, it changes slowly, which I think we've talked about with, I, I think it'll take decades rather than years for them to fix the the female directors problem or the actors of color problem. or And, and those are just the two of, of many because you add members slowly and they have added a lot of new members and they have taken a lot of efforts, but it's still a tremendous like voting body with a large history who's going to, to outweigh the brand new people. You know, everyone has a vote. But I, I think also... The reason that we're upset is because we actually do get invested in this and somehow we believe that maybe one year they will pick the best picture. And they did with Moonlight. And I think that gave us a lot of hope, which maybe we've invested in. And also, what is the point of talking about all this if we're just going to accept the fact that they're doing 
the same Oscar-y stuff. I think the thing that annoys me a little bit more than even 1917, and I, I don't mean this to come off the way it's going to sound, is uh, stuff like Renee Zellweger for Judy, where it's like, that just seems to exist in a aquarium that is only being viewed by awards voters. And I, I would at least like the movies that we talk that that get talked about for awards to feel like they are somewhat part of like the real world conversation of people saying like, yeah, I saw this. I saw this movie. Maybe it was on Netflix, but I saw it. I'm not really I, I haven't seen Judy. I'm not trying to knock the performance, which is by all accounts really great. I just mean like that to me is like old school Hollywood. Like, yeah. how did that even happen? Right. Like you mean like where's Brie Larson for her work in Endgame? That's what you want to no, know. No, I mean Captain Marvel. And I, I'd appreciate it if you'd stop <laughs> ignoring that performance. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to erase it. She captured the 90s in a way that I don't okay. think Richard right. Linklater right. has, you know. But, but to your point about Judy and real world conversation, I did get a text from one of my closest friends this weekend whose parents see a lot of movies. Her parents are older. And the her dad's favorite movie of the year was, I believe, The Irishman. But anyway, mom's favorite movie of the year was Judy. Okay. And she wanted, you know, and and the dad's complaint about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was that it's cinema, not movies. And I like movies. And I was like, wow, that's a tremendous uh, encapsulation of how other people think about yeah. movies. So we just have to remember, we're not the only people. I've never heard that used as a pejorative. I've heard the opposite. I've heard like, it's a movie, it's not cinema. Right? I felt that it was self-aware. If, if crotchety. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't um, know. Where are these people? What state do they live in? They live on Long Island. Oh, well, there is. Oh, <laughs> checkmate, dog. There is the you answer. Go, Sean, there, it's you in 30 well, years. I'm, I'm, I'm racing from my past yeah. at every turn. I yeah. live in Los Angeles now. So, huh. Yeah. Well, there were some other awards over the weekend. Obviously, there were other awards at the I DGAs. Just got this view of you like standing outside the arc, arc light being like, Jessica, only child, <laughs> Long Island, New York. <laughs> well, the good thing that's happening here is that when the parasite win happens, we'll get to be exultant. You know, yeah. there, there will actually be an eruption. You and just jinxed it. I, I didn't. I don't have that power. If I did, I would use it much more frequently on this podcast and elsewhere. For example, I would have Do deleted Chris from existence. Jinxes? I don't. I guess so. Yes. I, not really. Not in the sense of like I'm wearing the same clothes for a week right. or, you know, I will when watching a sports game, if I'm sitting in one place and things go well, then I'll kind of stay, stay in that area. I do believe in that. Yeah. Uh, there's no such thing as jinxes. Okay. Um, at the DGA's Almahara L1 for Outstanding First Feature, which is uh, an award that the Oscars needs to add immediately. Um, and for documentary, Stephen Bogner and Julia Recker won for American Factory, which, you know, that certainly feels like where that award is going to. So even now, some of the secondary categories so seem very what, predictable what right is now. The, what is the, the one category? It's either up in the air or you feel like is vulnerable for upset. Well, it's a good question. There, the USC Scripter Awards also happened over the weekend. That's a screenwriting mm -hmm. awards uh, that, that are, it's given out by an interesting array of people. It's something like 50 people. Some screenwriters, some academics, um, some men and women of letters uh, are involved in giving out the awards. And they give the award to Greta Gerwig. For Little Women. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Greta Gerwig is going to win Best Adapted Screenplay. That is just like a please don't jinx it situation. Okay. I'm very angry at you right now. There is it's also, possible. It's possible. Chris. It's possible. Anything's possible. We haven't I could win Best Adapted Screenplay. I'm not even nominated. <laughs> but don't count me out. I actually don't think that you could. But I, I don't think you could. <laughs> don't count me out. I mean, maybe in the future. A lot of ghostwriting on Captain Marvel from me. <laughs> I'm ready to come forward. <laughs> so if if not Greta, then many people seem to think. Many people are saying that Taika Waititi for his work on Jojo Rabbit is is in the running. The one award that I don't have a feel for is original screenplay. Wait, so Tarantino is not a lock for Once Upon a Time for screenplay? I don't think he's a lock. I think he's a favorite. Hmm. 
but I don't think he's a lock. And now with the idea that he's not going to invest director and once upon a time in Hollywood is maybe running in fourth place. Like I don't even know where it is in the hierarchy, which I, I genuinely find shocking. I, the fact that it turned out this way, I really thought that it would be coronation time about two months ago for him. Um, you can tell they did too. They did a lot of work on that movie. I think yeah. I said that in it. July or yeah. something, which was extremely wrong of me. I'm wrong, but I'm also shocked that it would win. It. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, it checks a lot of the theoretical boxes, but it also has been around for a long time and that may be working against it. Nevertheless, I don't know. I mean, no, Baumbach could win. Uh, Bong Joon-ho could win. Yeah, you, you also have to wonder if if Best Picture and Best Director are both trending 1917. Then are they going to use, obviously Parasite will win in foreign film, but will they use the screenplay spot as a, as like for Bong Joon-ho? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's hard to say. That to me is the hardest one to predict, I believe, at the moment. Because we know foreign film is going to Parasite. It seems likely that it, that documentary is going to American Factory. I mean, you know, everything else is sort of the much more technical awards. Mm-hmm. You know, that top eight is really what we talk about on this show all the time. And I don't know. Th- this feels unusual. I know the acting awards are always very predictable. But if you guys had to guess what your one surprise would be, what would you guess? Oh, I mean, I, it, I, it's hard to even imagine Joaquin and Zellweger not winning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't. I, I feel like I feel like it would be shocking if Joaquin Phoenix didn't win. I agree. I, agree I, 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 don't, I don't see that happening. I don't see that. I mean, there are some people who think that there's an outside chance the driver conjures the power, but it, he feels much more like Pacino in the 70s right now where it's like they're going to wait 20 Remind years. Remind me of the actress nominations? Saoirse Ronan for Little Women, Charlize Theron for Bombshell, Cynthia Revo for Harriet, and what's the fifth? Wow. This is so rude to whoever I can Scarlett Johansson Scarlett for Marriage Johansson. Story. Yeah. yeah. So what about Scarlett Johansson for Endgame? Is that, is that nominated? No, but yeah. you know she is also actually nominated for Jojo Rabbit. She is already nominated. She's twice. not nominated for Endgame. No, no, neither is um, uh, Groot not nominated. Okay, what about Baby Groot? Did they have to Baby Groot? What not killed nominated? is Groot in? Um, he's in the Arbor <laughs> okay, Union. All right, but <laughs> so we haven't heard about that yet. So we haven't really gotten into the Arbor Union and who who is Groot up against? Well, like Ar- no, obviously, like with Groot. No, next week is the Arby's. That's the last both of every year. It's show. Groot versus the tree from Tree of Life. The Ents from Lord of the Rings. Those, those they're those in there too. Great. Those guys were phenomenal. There are a lot of there are a lot of. There's been some good tree performances over the years. Okay. Name three more. Go ahead. I just named. We named three just now off the top of our head. That tree in Forrest Gump that Forrest and Jenny hang from. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. That was a really good tree. Uh, there's that tree that uh, Kevin Costner dies on in A Perfect World. He leans up against it. And then, of course, the tree of life, which that, is the tree that created yeah, life. He yeah. did already say that. Yeah. What else? Come on, Chris. Come up with a tree. Does Doctor Strange move any trees around? Uh, you mean like weed? No. <laughs> I just mean like, does he do anything? Does he conjure anything? No, I don't think so. You can't think. Are you just staring at me? Because you're just like, I know that he went out on this plank for this bit and now he can't think of any more trees. <laughs> Is that what you're doing? There were some other awards this weekend. Uh, the ASC Awards for Cinematographers were over the weekend. Of course, Roger Deakins, the uh, subject of a previous pod that this trio recorded, was awarded that prize. He also is almost certain to win Best Cinematography. Yet another award that feels very locked up right now. I really thought the short season was going to mean more unpredictable choices, but unfortunately, that's not the case. Do you think also, can I ask one more inside baseball question? Sure, but we are only in the dugout. We aren't playing the game. Are people pressed for time watching their screeners? Like, it's like, I feel like I've anecdotally heard a couple of people say like, oh yeah, you know, it's like doing due diligence to watch all this stuff that I'm, I'm supposed to be 
possibly voting for. But with the shortened season, like people are maybe not even seeing as much stuff. Yes. I Yes. Yes. I mean, I don't believe that people see everything that they're supposed to see on a normal year with the two extra weeks. But I, I think it is certainly very rushed. And people I, I, and I think that is somehow how you get to consensus faster because people are like, oh, well, I hear that it's going to be, you know, Renee Zellweger. So I should watch Judy. But maybe I won't watch right. anything else. Right. That is definitely a thing that happens yes. for sure. That kind of consensus building that happens early on takes place. But that's that runs counter to the 1917 conversation we're having. That's why it's such a confusing state of predictability for me. Because you can't draw lessons out of it. Exactly. There's yeah. no real takeaways here. It's more just like if you have the right movie at the right time, you're likely to win unless you run a damn good campaign that starts in August. Yeah. Which is what she did. I would love to rearrange like the 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 calendar a little bit and see what would have happened if uh Ford versus Ferrari in 1917 had swapped places. Like, you know, what would happen if 1917 comes out in the fall and people are really into it, but then it kind of fades a little bit. And then maybe Ford versus Ferrari is the Christmas dad movie that everybody goes to as a family during the holidays and gets like a little bit more momentum. I don't think that that movie probably ever was in real contention given the quality of the year. But I'd, I would love to have played a couple of what ifs out with this. Well, it's ironic that that movie has been dismissed as the kind of old world dad kind of movie that mm-hmm. the Academy is quote unquote moving on from only for 1917 to really slide right into its place. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's functionally Welcome they're doing the, the same world thing. of movies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it looks like World War One. <laughs> um, I want to talk about one more awards that happened over the weekend, but I don't want you guys to talk about it at all. So okay. please allow me to monologue briefly about the Annie Awards, which took place over the weekend. These are, of course, the animation awards. Um, I mentioned how predictable all of this stuff is right now at the Oscars. Apparently, the anime, best animation feature is not predictable because a movie called Claws won for best animated feature at the Annie's. I know neither of you have seen it. I don't want to hear your commentary. I saw the title card on Netflix. Is it about Santa Claus or something with Claws? Um, it's about legal documents. It's like several clauses in those oh, documents. Oh, like Better Call Saul. No, it's not. It's about Santa Claus. All right. Um, what does Santa Claus get up to in Claws? Uh, I... I <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not going to recap Claws here on this I'm podcast. I'm just, just trying to show interest. There's, no, there's no chance of doing Did Deacon's that. work on Claws? Yeah, yeah. yeah he yeah. shot it. Yeah. yeah, he shot the whole thing. Well, he he drew all of it. <laughs> it is hand-drawn, which is notable. Not that you guys care. Um, <laughs> the, in the indie film category at the Annie's, I Lost My Body one, which is also nominated for Best Animated Feature. So, no consensus here. And Toy Story 4 did not win, which is what I thought previously was going to win Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. TBD. Looking at me blankly, which is what I wanted out of this segment. Okay. Thank you very much to both of you guys. Should we go to stock up, stock down? Let's do it. If it goes bust, you can make 10 to 1, even 20 to 1 return. And it's already slowly going bust. So let's talk quickly about the box office. Bad Boys for Life, huge damn hit. Like a mega hit. Mm -hmm. In fact, Bad Boys are back. They are the, the backest they've been in sure. a long time. And um, I'm trying to figure out why. And I can't totally figure it out. Even though I like the movie, and we talked about it last week with Shay, mm-hmm. it's very fun and very effective. It's not significantly different from a lot of other franchises like this that they've tried to bring back. Now, in a lot of the recaps of the box office this week, people have noted that Terminator, Men in Black, also a Will Smith vehicle, and Charlie's Angels did not work. I still have not seen the Charlie's Angels movie, so I can't testify as to why that's the case the terminator movie is okay mm-hmm. it's not bad it's definitely not as good as bad boys for life but it's not bad men in black international is a, a, apocalyptically bad it was not good but still like this is just it's retread territory so why did this one work in the other others oh, i do have a theory there okay. is one thing that's different which is bad boys for life is about uh 
Will Smith and Martin Lawrence and their chemistry. And it's about people as it is much as it is about like the actual franchise. Like the IP is in a way those two humans. Right. So and that's rare. You don't get that many things where it's like, oh, I love seeing that guy and I still have a connection to that guy and I would like to go see him. So is there another franchise out there in the world like that that you'd want to revive that is more focused on the people and not on, you know, because there's no mythology behind Mike Lowry. You know, we're not we don't need to dig into the the Silmarillion of Mike Lowry. Well, there is now, but that's true. That's the movie does create that. That's a good point. There's a witch in this movie, right? Yeah. I haven't seen it. Yes, there is. Played by Kate Del Castillo. Do you know what she's most famous for? Uh, She was she's the Sean Penn woman. She's the woman who Sean Penn and El Chapo, they broke bread. Yes. She led Sean Penn to El Chapo. Yes. Which is one of the best things that's happened this century. That was absolutely incredible. It was great when Sean leaned over to me during Bad Boys for Life and was like, that's the woman who took a Sean Penn to El Chapo. <laughs> she was his El Chapo fixer. Tr- she truly was. I mean, she's obviously an actress in her own right who has done a great many things, but um, that's who she'll always be to me. Except now she's El Bruja. She's La Bruja. La Bruja. And uh, turns in a strong performance in the movie. <laughs> um, 1917, obviously doing well at the box office. Doolittle, surprisingly, did not die. This weekend, it actually did okay. Kids love it, like you suggested, I suppose. I just, people have to take their kids to see animals talking. That's my understanding of parenthood in a nutshell. Wow, that's that's troubling. <laughs> that's troubling for all the parents around the world. Uh, the reason that Chris is here in the room is because of the next film. Oh, I thought I was here to talk to you about the Downey appearance on Rogan. Uh, well, you can speak on that for a well, bit if you like. He speaks very highly of Doolittle on that. Mm-hmm. that I, I watched that appearance. I'm a, a very, of the Doolittle IP or of this film? Of, of Stephen Gagan. And his work in Syria on Syriana, sure. and okay. that's that's what drew him to the to the Doolittle story. Yeah, uh, reportedly Stephen Gagan had some troubles on on the set of Doolittle. Did he? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's what I heard. He could, couldn't work with penguins. It was the problem. <laughs> I, th- I think he struggled with the concept of humans interacting with digital animation. Didn't he write the screenplay? Uh, yes, he did. Okay. Uh, nevertheless, making movies like this is hard. You guys may mock me for my interest in animation, but it's not easy. I don't think we're mocking the effort that goes into animation. We're mm-hmm. mocking the idea that it's as meaningful as uh, movies that are about real people. I think sometimes you do mock it. I, I mean, it's, it's all in the game. Yeah. Chris, you're here to talk about The Gentleman. I sure am. Went and saw this last week um, by myself. I, I'll, I'll say, I've been thinking about having a segment about this movie and trying to figure out what's the right way to couch this segment. Because if I'm being honest, the movie is very regressive, kind of racist and pretty stupid mm-hmm. however i really really liked it <laughs> and i don't really know how to reconcile that but i was hoping that we could talk about it because this is of course guy Ritchie's new movie after being in the in the ip gulag mm-hmm. for the last five years making a king arthur movie and then the aladdin film and sherlock and before that yeah. and, and sherlock holmes films for years before that this is the return to the kind of lock stock and two smoking barrels snatch Rock the original and roll, rock yeah. and roll, the British gangster movies that he made his name on that I really like and also know to be stupid, but also think are wonderfully stylish and entertaining and weird. And they're the kind of smart, dumb movies that I really wish there actually were more of. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you guys think of The Gentleman? You guys are looking at me. Uh, you know, I really, really enjoyed myself during this movie. It's strange how unlike a Guy Ritchie movie it is in its filmmaking. It's mm-hmm. essentially like almost like a stage play. There's like lots of long two-person dialogue scenes uh, where that are very dense. Like I can tell that I've become way too dependent on subtitles on all, all of my television and Netflix viewing because I was like, what the fuck is he saying? Uh, but it features some of the 
wildest performances from famous people that I've seen in a really long time, most notably Hugh Grant, um, and is about a lot of stuff that I'm very interested in, like British tabloid journalism and the international drug trade and Michelle Dockery uh, being a cockney gangster mall who also has her own car detail- detailing shop. Um, for women. For women. Yeah, for women, yes. It is, yes. It's a car detailing shop. Key distinction. Shop, yes, yes. Women. That must be a booming business. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought it was like really entertaining. I, I thought that it just really lacked a lot of the filmmaking panache that you would expect Guy Ritchie to bring to something like that. It felt like a little tired in that sense. Like I'm so, I was like, where's like you're slowing down the film and then like throwing the camera on the other side of the room and then going back in time. And we did some of that stuff, but most of it was in the screenplay. What did you, what did you mm-hmm. think? I would say that I spent 35% of this movie imagining you, Chris Ryan, doing the voice work of the various of characters. Yeah. In the, well, Colin Farrell, Hugh Grant. Can you do a, a Charlie Hunnam? I have a real... Well, Charlie Hunnam, I would like to know what Charlie Hunnam was kind of aiming for there. Because is he Irish? No, no he's, he's English. Yeah, he's okay. English. No, I think he was. I think he was going for... This isn't country specific, but it's performance specific. I think he was going for like a Robert Duvall-esque I am even keeled. Sure. Throughout this Except entire film. Except when he puts film. on the voice of British rude boys at the council estate when he starts shooting his Uzi off. Yes. That's, I guess that's a spoiler of some kind. That, I enjoyed that sequence yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. I have to say, and, and I am a, a great fan of Charlie Hunnam and I relate to his character from Triple Frontier the most of, of any character. But I, <laughs> What was his character's name? I don't remember, okay. but they, he chokes... Hot blonde? Yeah, well, also, hot he's blonde? the person who chokes someone out in a public because they wouldn't move their shopping cart. He has PTSD. <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> you relate to him because you also have PTSD or just because you I choke have, people out at supermarkets? And specifically Publix can get quite fraught if you're from the South, you know. Um... I feel that he's always doing weird voice work. It, mm-hmm. He kind of always thinks he's in a Shakespearean play. And I think it's something about his actual, like the projection of his voice, that it's always really booming and kind of controlled in a strange way in movies. I, I felt that in Lost City of Z also. So I don't really think he's, yeah. he's He often has like the... Making the, contextual choices. The guy playing a guy, playing another guy, yeah. to quote Robert Downey Jr. from Tropic Thunder. He's like... I'm a British man who's pretending to be American who's playing a role of a British man. Yes. But it's like gone, it's like pinged at a yes. satellite on the other side of the world and then come back. All, all that being said, I thought he was quite good in this movie and definitely this movie needed someone like him because everyone else is like, I'm working at scale so I'm going to do whatever I want. That's, ex- <laughs> that's exactly where I wanted to go with this conversation. So there's an enormous amount of famous people in this movie. Matthew McConaughey, you already mentioned Hugh Grant. Matthew McConaughey thinks he is in a Lincoln commercial this entire movie. Yes. He just sits there drinking scotch going... The king of the jungle is the lion, <laughs> unless he's also the lioness. <laughs> um, this movie also features Henry Golding, uh, Crazy Rich Asians, yes. now star, I suppose, though perhaps not after this movie and last Christmas. Maybe things are not going as well for Henry Golding as last we would have Last Christmas liked. made a lot of money in Did the it? UK. Yeah. Okay. Just FYI. So I think he's still hanging on. So then he's doing fine. And and frankly, my like my a- absolute favorite Colin Farrell thing in a long time. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. Who I guess plays... How, how can we describe his character? An Irish boxing coach who has a gym somewhere in uh, <laughs> in London who I thought, although I could be, I'm sure some eagle-eyed listener will point me out that I'm wrong. I thought he was wearing a Red Bull Salzburg tracksuit the entire movie, but it could be like a Kappa, like just usual British streetwear brand, but is dressed like a guy who wears British streetwear from 1988. Yes. And um, has an incredible scene in a chippy where he uh, beats up four guys um, using vinegar, mostly. 
Uh, it's just like an incredible performance from him. But in the way that McConaughey is kind of... He dresses of, like he's in Run DMC in this movie. It's it's head-to-toe tartan plaid jumpsuit. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very strange... And and frankly, I think he's pulling the look off. Mm-hmm. I think he looks actually weirdly good. The hat's not so much. I just started giggling just now because I was imagining Chris in the outfit, which yeah. that was my other I'd do it if I could pull it up. Like, wearing a tartan we plaid it. right yeah, now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, he, it's a very strange character. He's the kind of guy who like you think was in the mafia at some point or was just an, an enforcer at some point but and has been yeah, drawn back into the game. he seems to be game. really all about clean living now, but I, I don't really know. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then there's Hugh Grant. Yeah, so Hugh Grant plays mm-hmm. the aforementioned tabloid journalist. Amanda, you're a Hugh Grantologist. I am. How do you feel about him inserting himself into this rough and tumble world? It's great for him. I think it's what he wants. He Hugh Grant is uh, famously um, ill at ease with his romantic comedy history. He, I, I believe, it basically started. He was friends with Richard Curtis, uh, who uh, wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral, and um, and they wrote the first Hugh Grant rom com character as a as a joke because Hugh Grant is not like that in wrong in real life. And then he's been typecast as the rom-com lead for 20 years and would really rather just be an actor and be saying wild stuff in a Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah. And I thought the voice was a, a choice, but I was pleased that he seemed to be having so much fun. And, you know, good for him. The, the combination of his and Jeremy Strong's fluid sexuality was a lot in this movie. It was a real choice on on the part of all the people here. But did it ignite something in you? No, but I was just like, I feel like I'm watching like a, a Bruckheimer Simpson movie from the like 1994. As as did the lot of Miravax signage in this movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I was like, did this movie like just get shelved and then like they didn't take a look at it until it came out? Like, was it shot in 2005 and then it just like? Well, I think it was independently financed in 2018. Okay. In part by Miramax, which is not the Miramax that we know sure. of old. Obviously, it has changed hands a few times now. And STX bought it last year for for kind of for, for a song. I think for like seven million dollars. Okay. So this is a movie with Matthew McConaughey and Colin Farrell and Hugh Grant and Charlie Hunnam and Henry Golding and Michelle, Michelle Dockery, Dockery yeah. like six really famous people, and also six people in the UK who are very famous for seven million bucks, which means they made it pretty cheaply, which might be why. It doesn't have the the whiz bang. That sure, you but it's not like Lockstock was made for a ton of money. No, right? it's true. It's true. But maybe I don't know. Maybe um, guy is just luxuriating at this stage of his career. Yeah. Last time I spoke to him on this show, um, he seemed to be essentially one of his characters. Like he seemed to have evolved. Mm-hmm. I think he was wearing a, a tweed suit. It had been had been tailored just so. He's a, a muscular gentleman, sort of sort of like compact, mm-hmm. powerful. And having a conversation with him is kind of like having a conversation with one of McConaughey's like right hand men. Okay. Um, so maybe he was just making a documentary about his car detailing interests. Sure. <laughs> Good for him. Um, it's a very weird movie. It feels like a very not 2020 movie. No. That was no. the one thing that really sticks out to me about it. Did this movie make any money this weekend? It made $11 million, which is okay. Shout out to STX. Um, it's probably not what you want with this kind of star power. It's also like a hard movie to recommend. But I don't, I don't, I don't imagine they have like huge expectations for a movie like this in this day and age because it's pretty unabashedly like, gr- you know, gruff. You know, it's not like Ocean's Eleven where it's like, oh, these guys are being so charming and they're like swearing in Cockney for two hours. Yeah, it essentially opens also with a character getting his head blown off while enjoying a pint and blood splashing into a beer, which I saw as the really like low rent version 
of the Pepto-Bismol going into the whiskey in First Reformed. Mm-hmm. That was the like starter kit version of, of that imagery. That's what thinking of then, yeah. You think Guy Ritchie has seen First Reformed? Probably not. That's too bad. Yeah. I wish we were talking about First Reformed this year. That's okay. just a real shame that we're yeah, not. Though, I mean, that didn't, that didn't have a great well, we, amount of the, either. So it's like, it, we would still be disappointed. How many Amandas did you give that out of five? Gentlemen. Gentlemen? Wow. Um, did you I, just invent a, a rating yeah. system? Because sometimes Amanda's like, she's a little opaque. You know, and I need to know just hard facts. I think it's probably like a three out of five. Right. I think I had, Sean and I went together and, and that was fun and I had a nice time. I like all of those people. I thought that when it was funny, it was funny. And when it was racist or politically incorrect, it it was self-aware. And I agree with you. I, it wasn't like a memorable piece of filmmaking, but sometimes you just want to go to the movies and have fun with famous people. It you. struck me as the kind of movie that isn't actually racist or misogynist or any of these things, but is also very romantic about a time when movies could be that. And that seemed to be what he was trying to capture. To me, it is like the movie version of the comedian. You can't say this anymore, but blah, blah, blah. Like the the acknowledging the, I don't want to get canceled or everyone gets canceled now, but I'm just putting it in a movie. Right. But not even in like an intellectually curious Dave Chappelle way where he's like, let me see if I can really get under the skin of everybody in the way that they feel about this. It was just like, I'm just going to say things that you're not supposed to say. It was better when we were able to make movies right after Pulp Fiction and that was it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It did have that feel. Any, Any lingering thoughts? No, I mean, we'll be talking about this one for 12 months to come. Which, <laughs> which voice do you think that you can do? I actually can't do Cockney. Thanks for asking. Okay. So I, my dad did an amazing Cockney accent, and I just could never pick it up. I could probably do Colin Farrell, but I can't remember any of his lines off the top of my head. But I'll, 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 I'll workshop it. Okay, thank you. That's really disappointing that you yeah. came here with nothing I feel prepared. Like he kept just being I'm not like, a circus animal, you know. Like boys, I have thoughts, I, I have takes. <laughs> you know, I'm not here to just like you're like, oh, the monkeys like on a unicycle. It's like I <laughs> I know a lot about movies. The thing is, you're not a circus animal. You're you're a Doolittle. <laughs> you can talk uh, to the animals, and you can talk to the to to the English and Irish stars yeah. of Hollywood. I my Irish my Colin Farrell. Irish accent from this movie would differ would not differ at all from my Saoirse Ronan accent. So I, okay. I'm just saving us the time. Can you do Sersha playing Matthew McConaughey's character in this film? <laughs> um, hold on. <laughs> what does he say? He's like the lion and the lioness. Yeah. The law of the jungle is you're either the lion or the lioness. I, but he, I don't even know if he says that. That was good. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> that was worth it. Thank you. Bono, Sersha, Sersha, and 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 Colin Farrell, same person, same bit. <laughs> Let's go to the big race. Well, mama, look at me now. I'm a star. I don't really want to talk about any of the Oscar races. I want to talk about Sundance. Okay. Amanda, how are you finding it? I It's good. I think we figured out the shuttles, as mentioned on the first podcast. Um, it got a lot more crowded, so that was interesting. And It's very crowded yeah, here. It's very crowded. For many people. I'm kind of navigating how to get into things and... I've just I spent a lot of time with that booklet, just like my nose in the booklet, looking at the times of all the movies and the maps and being like, what can I do and what can I not do? But it's fun. I've seen some I've seen I have seen at least one movie that I thought was like very good. Why don't you speak on it right now? Okay, it's called Shirley and it's directed by Josephine Decker. And we talked about it a bit on the uh, anticipated podcast. So we do know who Shirley Jackson is because Shirley Jackson wrote the lottery. Yes. Okay. well, I I had to. Put, I hadn't put, oh, that, you hadn't together put that together yeah. in my yes. head and then some between when we did the podcast and when we when I went to see this movie. Right. Famed American 20th century short story writer. Yes. But 
the lottery is kind of the first thing that happens in the movie. And the most basic description of the movie, which I'm really not going to try to spoil, is that it's about uh, Shirley Jackson writing a novel and kind of where she gets her inspiration. And this is a this is a comparison that I thought in the head, and it actually has nothing to do with the plot. But if you're familiar with the fil- the book, The Secret History by Donna Tartt, that's a book that is set at Bennington College in Vermont and is about a group of literary academic people uh, who get into some hijinks. And this this movie is also set at Bennington College because Shirley Jackson's uh, husband was a professor at Bennington College. It's in the 60s and it's about a similar literary crowd who gets into some some hijinks. <laughs> hijinks is not the quite word, but things get weird. And it it is not an adaptation of The Secret History in any way, but I was like, oh, cool. They figured out how to make The Secret History into a movie, but about women. That's interesting. And I really responded to it. It's also just excellent filmmaking, great performances from Elizabeth Moss all the way down. Um, It was fun. I was excited to see it. I liked it, too. I didn't love it. I liked it. It's very it's in the tradition of Decker's other movies, which is very claustrophobic, very intimate on every actor's face all the time. And I was unfortunately and this is really one of the um, the vagaries of Sundance. And it's, I'm not a complaint. It's really my fault. But I got there a little bit late, mm-hmm. right before the movie was about to start. And I sat in the front row. When you sit in the front row, looking up at a movie that is shot this claustrophobically, it's really disorienting. And it's really, uh, it, it overwhelms the experience in some way. So I look forward to seeing it again, not looking straight up into the sky through Elizabeth Moss's nostrils. Yes, they do spend a lot of time on her face and it's uh, various... Uh, anxieties and issues. I did think that this movie, without spoiling anything, had an absolutely incredible ending. Yeah. It, it, just an awesome ending. Um, Chris, what you seen anything? Sundance? Yeah, you know, I, I, I saw a horror film that I liked a lot called The Night House the other night. Uh, it stars Rebecca Hall. It's directed by David Bruckner, who did a, a movie called The Ritual, which came out on Netflix about a year, year and a half ago. And uh, the thing that jumped out at me, there's some, some really great scares in it. It's basically about um, a woman grieving uh, the, after the suicide of her husband and sort of trying to piece together the mystery of his life in this house that they have on a lake in upstate New York. And it's very atmospheric. And uh, Rebecca Hall does some really incredible stuff in this movie. Um, I won't get too into like the twists and turns of it. I, I, I would recommend it for people who are horror fans especially. But I, I did notice that, you know, we always talk about this... Um, you know, the, the uh, underappreciated middle ground of movies, like these genre movies that Hollywood doesn't really make anymore. So maybe like they'll start winding up more on these streaming services or they go to television. And this was a movie that I did feel like was trying to do like three of those genres at once. You know, there was a time where I think this movie would have been much more straight up scary or much more straight up a thriller. And this woman trying to like kind of investigate her husband's past. But it almost it almost felt like a product of... Uh, of like, wow, I can't believe we got to make this movie. Let's bring all of this stuff in. Let's bring like the Pacific Heights element in, but also bring in the Shining element and also bring in some like incredibly intense jump scares and screaming and loud loud score. So it was an interesting experiment in seeing where where genre movies are kind of at right now to see it at Sundance like this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. Um, I saw a movie this morning that I, it's definitely the best thing I've seen so far. It's called Dick Johnson is Dead. It's a documentary. Would not, would literally not be shocked if we were talking about it. At best documentary a year from now it's made by a woman named kirsten johnson who's a longtime um cinematographer for documentaries she made a documentary in 2015 called camera person which many people say is one of the best documentaries of the last 10 years but is much more impressionistic and doesn't have really a narrative through line the idea of this movie is her essentially documenting the waning years of her father's life that sounds very grim and gruesome this is one of the funniest and most 
exciting and inspiring movies I, I've seen in a long time. It, the way that she chooses to talk about these ideas with her father and then consistently put her father in situations that would provoke emotion is so interesting and unusually peppy, but also insightful and heartrending and all the other things that you want a movie like this to be. It's also 89 minutes, which Love is it. magnificent. <laughs> it's a perfect runtime and it's going to be on Netflix like in two months. And it is a little bit of a like, this is what documentaries can be. They don't just have to be these stodgy, deeply serious, kind of like archival driven. Like there is an, a, a huge, like a wave of creativity in the movie that I'm just not used to seeing. So I would highly recommend that to everybody who watches movies on Netflix when it comes out in a couple of months. Um, any other uh, Sundance thoughts that you want to share? You, you got a good look at the ski lift. Yeah, the chairlift. Yeah. I've been walking by it a lot, and I still have not ridden it. Although there was a very kind person who listened to our podcast and said that I shouldn't be afraid and I shouldn't listen to you and I should buy a, a pass and go on the chairlift and then I could see on the other side of the hill. You deserve it. To the mountains beyond. That sounds like the sequel to the movie Chris was just describing <laughs> yeah, yeah. where you yeah. are murdered on a A woman chairlift. finds herself on the other side of the, of the mountain. <laughs> Do you remember uh, the movie Frozen before there was a Frozen Disney no, movie? Like when, the ki- when they're stuck in the ski lift and the wolves and they're like uh, wolves waiting you know for them. This movie? No, but you know what? I did once get... You actually might like this one. Mm, I... I when I went to visit Disney World as a child, we got stuck in one of those like gondola rides mm-hmm. that goes over Disney World for like an hour and a half. So I don't want to. Maybe that's your PTSD. I guess so. No, but I'm I'm fascinated by them. I want to be a part of it. It's just it's so close to the town. It looks like such a fun ride. Chris, are you getting into any other uh, fun journeys here at Sundance? No, I've I've had a little bit of a hard time acclimatizing. Oh, really? Yeah, like my my I feel like I'm I'm out of breath frequently, which is weird. I stopped smoking such a long time ago. Have you been greeting the people in the street? All of the fans of the Watch and the Ringer NBA show. Are you messing with me? No. Uh, some great fans out. For all the Ringer products. Yeah. It's been really nice to talk to them. And what do you say to them? You shake their hand. And I say, what's your name? What brings you to Sundance? And then what you slink away quickly? What, no. Like, what's your next move? Do you engage them in conversation? I say, I say do you, do, would you like to go get a meal with me? <laughs> Has anyone quoted uh, your famed moment from the Skyfall podcast in which you called yourself the best? <laughs> Nobody. No one said that. Nobody to you. yet. Okay. No, but people were really cool. They've they've a lot of rewatchables and big pick fans and and watch fans. Thanks to everybody at Sundance who has uh, checked out what we're doing here. Really appreciate it. Um, Amanda and I will be back later this week talking about all the great stuff we saw at Sundance and God willing, um, some new news on the Oscars front. I wouldn't hold your breath, but you know, you guys got to do something to create the news. Like, what can you We've do? You got to take Sam Mendes down here. a peg. Like, you want us to assassinate him? No, but it's like the I, I don't know. Then he'll definitely win. <laughs> you got to do something. You got to do something. You got to keep it fresh for yourself. The shop's open, man. What's give us yeah. some ideas? You're I'll, the creativity guy. I'll think. I'll take a gondola ride tonight, and I'll, I'll think. I'll th- have a good think on it. Chris Amanda, thanks for chatting here with us. Big Picture is brought to you by AT&T, reminding you that when it comes to wireless networks, just okay is not okay. 